So I recently had the opportunity to climb to the top of the dome of the US Capitol. And it was an amazing and literally breathtaking experience climbing those 300 steps to get to the top to allow for arguably, arguably what was the best view of DC that I could imagine. At the end of that tour, the aide offered to take us to the house chamber so that we could see a few portraits that she wanted to share with us. Now when we entered the house chamber, she pointed out the portraits to us. They're specifically called relief portraits and are sculpted faces of lawmakers throughout history, both recent and ancient. Some of the faces that were up there included those of Tom, that of Thomas, Jef Thomas Jefferson, Hammurabi, Babylonian king and author of one of the earliest surviving legal codes, and Suleiman, a sultan of the Ottoman Empire who improved and reformed civil and military codes. Now there are 23 portraits in all, and 11 of the portraits line the eastern chambers and the other 11 line the western halls, the western walls of the chambers. Now there's something different about the 23rd portrait. The 23rd portrait sits in the middle of the chamber on the top of the wall and it looks directly down at the speaker of the house. All the other portraits, only half of the face has been sculpted and those faces also look directly. But this 23rd portrait looks down, full face figured, and soon I came to find out that that was the face of Moses. I find it interesting that Moses, a religious leader, right, ends up among all these famous lawmakers throughout history. Moses, the man credited with transforming a wandering people into a nation for receiving the Ten Commandments upon which the laws of nations are built. A man far removed from our time, but not from our influence. Now, after being in a room filled with portraits of historical great leaders, it made me think of the qualities a leader needs to possess to be listed among the great. In one of my favorite books, Good to Great, the author shares the finding that in his research of what distinguishes good companies from great companies, that leaders of great companies tend to be honest, modest, humble, willful, and fearless. In Exodus 32, in the story of the golden calf, Moses and Aaron become examples to us of great and poor leadership. While Moses possesses qualities such as humility and often fearlessness in his approach to the Israelites, what truly sets him apart from Aaron in this chapter is his bold leadership. Now, I want you to stay with me as we explore a few principles of bold leadership. And I don't want to lose you with a sermon title I don't want you to think I'm not bold or I'm not a leader because we each are leaders in our sphere. Whether it's at home as a parent or a grandparent, whether you're the child in the classroom that all the kids look to the answers for, 
Whether you are the one in your friend circle who is the social influencer, we are all leaders in some capacity. Now, early in Exodus 24, verse 12, we find Yahweh inviting Moses to the Mount of Sinai so he can give Moses the tablets of stone with the commandments that he has written so that Moses could teach the people. The Lord expresses his desire in chapter 25, verse 8, for the people to make him a sanctuary so that he can be with them. The tabernacle, once finished, would be the place of God's presence with his people. Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, almost six weeks, receiving specific instructions on the construction of the sanctuary. The Israelites supposed that he would have been back by now, and at the hour of his delay, they begin to get agitated. Aaron was granted authority in the absence of Moses, and so the people came to him with their demand. Get up. Make some gods for us who can lead us. Because this man, Moses, notice how flippantly they address Moses as this man. This man, Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. The people are not sure what has happened to Moses and assume that he has either abandoned them or that he has died on the mount. A ridiculous assumption since the cloud that indicated God's presence still sat before their eyes on Mount Sinai. They had received no indication that God or Moses had abandoned them. Yet they appear ready to move on as they approach Aaron with an idea of what to do in the absence of Moses. Notice that there is no mention of the Lord as their divine leader, only this man Moses who brought them out of Egypt. Now, I think this is incredible, especially if you put this into context of the proximity of the miracles that they have been experiencing to the time they left Egypt until their current time at Sinai. It has only been about three months since they have left Egypt. Now I want you to stop and think. Can you think back through the last three months of your lives and identify some of the major events that have happened? You'd probably agree with me, right? For myself, I remember attending a few conferences, um, I remember that SAA had Teacher Appreciation Week. I remember getting sick in the middle of that week and not being able to participate when the church sponsored Treats for the Teachers. I remember Lauren Brown getting baptized in the baptistry of this right here. I remember SAA graduation the following week and camp meeting, vacation Bible school, Murray and I leaving for a few days to recover from vacation Bible school. These things all happened recently, right? And so it's incredible to me that these people who have been witness to these significant acts of God have forgotten about them so quickly and are so ready to move on, to request God's to lead them. Aaron tells them to bring him the gold earrings that their wives, sons, and daughters are wearing. So everyone took off the gold earrings they were wearing and brought them to Aaron. Here we find our first leadership principle. Bold leadership requires us to be firm in our resolve. We must stand firmly on our principles. Am I with God or am I against God? 
Will this thing that I am doing enhance my relationship with my spouse or with my friend, or will it harm it? Am I afraid of what other parents will say if I don't allow my child to participate in this activity? Or will I stand firm on my principle? You might be counteracting this principle with the argument that some things aren't as black and white, right? However, Aaron found himself standing in a gray space. The nuance behind verse 2 is that Aaron vacillates. He wavers. He does not firmly deny the outrageous request that the people bring to him. Instead, he makes a request that he is hoping the people will deny. Have you ever done that? Someone asks you to do something, and you don't really want to do it or you shouldn't do it, so you make up an elaborate excuse or a reason why you can't do it, only to find out that that person goes out of their way to make sure that you can fulfill the request. Aaron is hoping that by asking for the valuables of the people, that they may decide, we don't want to give up our gold, we don't want to give up our jewelry, we don't want to give up our valuable possessions. So Aaron wouldn't have to be the one to directly tell them no. But instead of clinging to their wealth and rethinking their position, the people do as Aaron has asked them, and his plan fails. Now there's a passage in Patriarchs and Prophets that addresses Aaron's situation, and it's written on the back of your connection card. It says, such a crisis demanded a man of firmness, decision, and unflinching courage. One who held the honor of God above popular favor, personal safety, or life itself. But the present leader of Israel was not of this character. Aaron feebly remonstrated with the people, but his wavering and timidity at the critical moment only rendered them the more determined. Now those of you who know me very well know that indecision can be a little bit of my Achilles heel. Does anyone else in here struggle with indecision? I don't know if you're, if you're thinking about it, maybe yes. Now you may be thinking it's not that bad, right? But this is where Aaron found himself. He certainly wasn't in favor of the calf, but his problem was that he wasn't firmly against it either. And because he wasn't firmly against it, he found himself compliant in the error of the people and leading the charge to create the God that the people requested. Is there a situation in your life that requires you to be steadfast and to hold firm to a principle? Don't be afraid to move forward if you have the confidence and blessing of God with you. Now Aaron collects the golds and creates a cast to mold a calf. And perhaps in an attempt to salvage a situation gone wrong, he builds an altar before the calf and proclaims the following day a festival to honor the Lord. They have broken the second commandment, don't make any images or create anything in my likeness to worship. But maybe if they dedicate this image to God, then they wouldn't have broken the first commandment. This is a foreshadowing of the difficulty that they will have in keeping the remainder of the laws. In a situation that seems to have bottomed out, 
Exodus 32 verse 6 tells us that the next day they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented peace offerings. Then they sat down to celebrate with eating and drinking. They got up to dance and it became like an orgy. Some of your versions may say play, but this was not innocent play. One commentary notes that the sensualism of idol worship constantly led to sensuality and the feasts upon idol sacrifices terminated in unseen and unimaginable things which one cannot describe. Now all of this is happening just a few days after they have promised God. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And in the midst of all this, the cloud is still visible. The presence of God is still there. The Lord's anger is kindled as he observes obscenity taking place, and he tells Moses in verse 7 of Exodus 32, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have seen these people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. Do you ever wonder why the term stiff-necked people is used. For those of you who are familiar with the farming world, you know that this is a term used to describe oxen that the farmer is trying to control that just won't, uh, won't be directed by the farmer. Now, I have a friend who used to work with horses and she shared something interesting with me. When you are trying to direct a horse or steer them into a different direction, you may pull on the reins a little to get their neck to move in the direction that you want them to go. But while you do this, if the horse is set on going its own way, it will turn its head slightly, but the body will continue to go in the direction that it wants to go, which is pretty interesting. God is calling out this group as a rebellious and perverse people, perhaps an even more severe indictment than just being obstinate as we often tend to define this word. They're set on doing the exact opposite of what he wants them to do. Now, what are we to make of the words that he speaks to Moses? Is he disowning his people? I don't think so. Within the context of what we know of God's character to be long-suffering, compassionate, and forgiving, it is more likely that these words are an invitation for Moses to draw near to him. And here's our next leadership principle. Bold leadership requires us to draw close. We must draw close to God, and we must draw close to people. Instead of leaving God's presence, Moses draws close. And as if talking to a friend, he begins to plead on behalf of the people. God wants Moses to come to him. He is not disowning his people. He doesn't intend to break his covenant with them as they have. 
Moses discerned ground for boldly responding to God's assertion that these aren't his people. He doesn't take ownership of the people. Yes, he is their leader, but only through the authority given to him by God. He isn't shrinking from his responsibility, but rather he is acknowledging God as the rightful leader of his people. He objects to their destruction not concerned about himself or for becoming a great name and a great nation. His concern is for the people, a group of cantankerous murmurers and complainers, but nonetheless a people that he loved. But he was also worried about the reputation of God. The surrounding nations had taken notice of the Israelites and how their God led them out of Egypt. And they were curious about what exactly would happen to them in the wilderness. They had speculated that instead of being led into the wilderness to give sacrifices to their God, that their God would destroy them. In a moment where Moses could have fled God's presence in fear of his anger, he instead resolves to stand firm and plead for the people. We must draw close to God. We must be intimate with him. Even in times when it feels we should be moving away from him. I hope you'll agree with me on this. But some of you are wondering, why do I need to draw close to people? People are messy, right? And relationships can be complicated. It seems that the closer we get to people, the messier relationships become. Yet we are called to deep compassion and love for others, just as Christ has loved us. I truly believe that as we draw close to God, he will give us a desire to care for the well-being of those around us. Do you feel God calling you to draw close to him? Or maybe you already feel close to God, but he's calling you to draw closer. Who are the people in your life that God has called you to embrace? It may be a relative, a friend, it may be someone that you haven't even met yet, but maybe God is using this time to prepare you for that relationship. Pray to him and reach out. Trust that even if you are rejected, that God can use you to show compassion and love to others. So God hears Moses' selfish, unselfish rather, and faithful prayer and accepts his plea to spare the nation. With the two tablets of stone in hand that contain God's written law, Moses and Joshua head down the mountain to the camp. God had alerted Moses to what was taking place, but Moses was not prepared for what he saw when he returned. He becomes so angry that he throws the tablets to the ground, breaking them, perhaps a symbolic act of the covenant that the people had broken with Yahweh. He seeks out his brother Aaron, who was left as the leader of the people in his absence. What did these people do to you that you made them sin so badly? Right here is where we would hope for Aaron to do the sensible thing and repent, but instead, he shows his weakness and cowardice, evading responsibility. It's the people's fault. 
he recounts some details to Moses. They asked for a god, so I collected the gold from them. I cast the gold into the fire, and out came this calf. Here's the final principle that I want to leave with you today. Bold leadership requires us to take responsibility of our mistakes and of our failures. Now, when I was young, I think I was about three or four years old, I participated in an activity that's pretty common to young children, or at least I think. I used to ride on walls. And one day my mom came home and she found what I thought was my beautiful creation on the wall. And she came to me, knowing it was me, I think my sister was probably too young to even write or have uh, control of her motor skills at that time. So uh, she came to me and she asked me, Lerone, who wrote on the wall? And I did what I thought was the sensible thing to do to stay out of trouble, right? I told her that a girl from off the streets came into our house and was responsible for writing on the walls. A bit ridiculous, but the point of the matter is there is an innate desire within us, whether young or old, for self-preservation and to run away from our mistakes. Aaron makes no mention of his compliance in this act. Remember back in Exodus 32, verse 4, where he actually molded the calf for the calf himself? Instead, he blames the people. So back to the book, Good to Great. The author mentions that great leaders are able to look at themselves in the mirror and not outside, right, not out the window, to apportion responsibility for poor results, never blaming other people, external factors, or bad luck. Now, before we begin to cast aspersions on Aaron, let's not forget that Aaron was called to be Moses' spokesman in Egypt. And Aaron stood by Moses' side as his prayer partner. And he had been on the mount previously just a few days before and had seen the God of Israel in Exodus 24. What a reminder of the need for us to be continually committing our lives to Christ. What's sad is that we're told in the book, Patriots and Prophets, that if Aaron had had the courage to stand for the right, irrespective of consequences, he could have prevented the apostasy of the people. If he had unswervingly maintained his own allegiance to God, if he had cited the people to the perils of Sinai and had reminded them of their solemn covenant with God to obey his law, the evil would have been checked. But his compliance with the desires of the people and calm assurance with which he proceeded to carry out their plans emboldened them to go to greater lengths in sin than had before entered their minds. What an opportunity Aaron missed to severely affect the course of history. Now, what are some of the mistakes or failures in your recent or distant past which you have not owned or repented? Is there someone to whom you need to apologize because you have caused harm? This does not mean that the relationship may be restored completely. Sometimes the harm is 
so deep that we may actually even need to be cautious and respectful of the space and time that the other party needs to heal. And sometimes it may even be necessary to seek professional help to assist you in addressing that situation in your life. But I hope that you will pray for God to help you discern the right decision and seek help if necessary. Now upon his return, Moses destroys the calf, swiftly reprimands the rebellious group and calls for a decisive action against those who would show no remorse. God had answered Moses' prayers to preserve the nation, but the evil must now be addressed. And what to us seems like an atrocious demand of an angry God is more perhaps a reminder of his seriousness about turning aside from evil due to the harm that it brings to our lives and for generations to come. But before judgment is brought upon the people, Moses calls those on the Lord's side to come to him. See, we're never forced to worship God. That was never part of his design. We each will have to make the choice to respond to him. And so here in this moment, freedom of choice exists. Even after they have turned their back on God, there is still hope and an opportunity to return to him. Now, there seems to be a theme that runs through the men and women of God that reveals examples of their overwhelming and persistent desire to be within his favor. It's debatable whether this relentless pursuit is, is combined with doubt and insecurity. But I'm so grateful that in our weak moments, God shows us his mercy and his grace. Moses had already spent time interceding for the people but yet he returns to the mountain to plead with God for them once again. He asks God to forgive them, and if not, he requests that the Lord remove his name from his records. Here is extreme ownership, taking responsible for an action that wasn't even his to bear. The beginning of Moses' path to boldness was filled with self-doubt and questioning. If you go back to Exodus 3, verse 4, you'll see how he responded to the call of God. It was in his constant time spent with God that he was able to build a character that we read about in Exodus 32. Now, there's an, an instructive saying known to backpackers that if you mind the ounces, the pounds will take care of themselves, meaning if you pack lightly, right? You won't have to worry about the overwhelming burden over time that heavier items may cause. Say, so it is in our lives that leadership and the influence that we have in our lives, it doesn't have to be great, right? But it's those small things in life when we're asked to take a stand in a larger arena if we're faithful in those small things, then in situations where we're asked to make difficult decisions, we'll be more prepared to make those right decisions. So we must show resolve, decisiveness, and be bold for God when leading or influencing others in our lives. The size of the situation doesn't matter. And in drawing near to God, we show boldness, and in turn are empowered to be bolder for him 
causing us to draw near to others and to point them to him. Then part of this God-given boldness includes the courage to take responsibility for our actions and influence and not deflecting failures, but owning them and repenting. We may not all be historically remembered as Moses. We may never have a portrait of our face in a great hall somewhere for people to view throughout time. But for all of us, it is the small and large acts of bold leadership in our day-to-day -day lives that will accumulate over days, years, and generations. And they will honor God's name, and the people will remember him, which I pray is the goal of everyone here.